Covenant Church, you can go ahead and be seated. My name is Hunter Sewell. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Living Hope, and it's my, my honor to be with you uh, this morning as we study God's Word together. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. If you would, take just a moment and fill out the, you see that QR code on the back of the pew in front of you. Use your camera. You scan that. We've got a, there's a, a place for a, a, a new um, a visitor. We'd love to have you fill that out. You, you might join us over at the Guest Connect desk in the back in the lobby. Uh, we've got a gift for you. We'd love to pray with you too. If there's any prayer requests that you have, uh, there's a spot on that QR code where you can fill that out and you can, be, uh, you, you can be confident that someone will be praying for that specific request this week. Um, and speaking of prayer, as I was praying and uh, asking the Lord what he would have me to preach this morning, I was reminded of one of my favorite chapters in the whole of the scriptures, Revelation chapter 12. And so we're going to be studying from uh, the book of Revelation today. Uh, and as I was thinking about titles of what to title the sermon, I was thinking of a, a couple of different titles I thought might be appropriate. The first one was The Red Dragon of Christmas. Uh, but I know that that's one of Pastor Bill's favorite titles for a sermon, but it didn't seem appropriate for today. The other one I thought of was The, the Conflict of the Cosmos. Uh, as you'll see, we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But that didn't, that didn't settle right either. And uh, as I was praying, I really sensed the Lord leading me to preach it as this this morning. A message of certainty for an uncertain future. You know, this is the time of year where everybody is uh, really excited about this upcoming year. We're kind of looking back at all the things that have been this past year, and we're excited to kind of step into 2022. You know, everybody's kind of saying the, the new year, new me. You know, it's a new opportunity for a fresh start. We're going to lose our weight this year. We're going to get our financial goals right. We're going to, you know, we're going to do all these great things. And we're dreaming about all the wonderful things that we hope 2022 has for us. Graduations, marriages, the birth of children, salvations, job promotions, all those kinds of things. Very few of us, if any of us at this time, are thinking about all of the bad things that might happen in 2022. But if there's anything that I've learned over the past couple of years, I've learned these three truths. The first one is that nothing is certain. Nothing is for certain. Secondly, in an instant, everything can change. And third, I have no control of tomorrow. These last two years have taught me those three truths, and the tornado that came through our city just a couple of weeks ago only confirmed what I already knew to be true. And as we think about 2022, and we say that we're excited for 2022, if we're honest with ourselves, and in the depths of our hearts, we're, we're, many of us are equally as excited as we are worried. We see the way that our culture is shifting and it's changing, and, and it worries us. We see the way that the, the morality that we hold to in the scriptures is, is scoffed at. And the way of life that we choose to live as is, 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 is kind of being mocked. And we fear for our children. We fear for the world that they're going to grow up in. We fear for the education that they're getting. We fear for ourselves and the way that the, the world is going to, going to treat us. We fear for our country. We fear for our church. We fear because we can't control. I'll share a little bit with you about my life. Um, I have a control problem. I, I like to be in control. Does anybody else like to be in control, have a control problem? Okay, good. This is a, a great joint effort. We are all on the road to recovery because the first step in overcoming an issue is admitting it. And so today we have all admitted, or many of us have admitted, that we have control problems. I like to be in control, or I like to at least think that I'm in control. And if I can be in control or convince myself that I am in control, even when I'm not, I'm okay. But when I'm not in control and I have no chance of convincing myself that I am in control, I'm an absolute mess. And so you can probably see why flying in an airplane is a, is a pretty, uh, it's, it's my kryptonite, I'll say that. I am an absolute mess when it comes to flying on a plane because I am not in control. Turbulence scares, the, it scares the, the life out of me. I'm not in control and there's nothing that's for certain in an airplane. 
And, and you know, it's, it's been really funny as I, I was kind of thinking back about this the other day, you know, like when I get on an airplane, I just, I just start to fall apart. When the, when the airplane started to take off down the runway, I mean, I'm sweating. I've got, you know, sweat. All of my armpits are really bad. I got sweat on my face. My hands are clammy. My heart's beating really fast. I'm just a mess. I, I was laughing uh, with the, the, some people earlier. Uh, my Apple Watch actually gave me exercise credit uh, because my heart was beating so fast. Uh, it does that fairly regularly when I'm on a plane. Um, you know, so that, that goes to show you that I'm a mess when I'm not in control, but I've become more and more convinced that there's no better place for me to find peace than to be 30,000 feet up in the air in a metal tube where I have no control. Because it's in those moments that I'm pushed back to remember the promises of God. I believe that God is good. I believe that God is sovereign. I believe that Christ is my savior. And it's in those moments where I'm tempted to fear, I'm tempted to worry because I can't control and because things are so uncertain that it's the promises of God that give rest to my soul. And this morning, we're going to be reminded of four of those promises uh, in God's word. And so I want to invite you to flip with me to Revelation chapter 12. And Gideon's going to come and help me read some of this. We're going to read the whole chapter today. So if you would, if you're able, please stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and Gideon's going to read 9, 10, 11, and, and then I'll pick up in verse 12. So here's what God's word says. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and he cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly away from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus." And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Gideon. You know, the truth is that we, we can't control what will happen in 2022. 
We don't even know what's going to happen in 2022, but even if we don't know what the future holds, we do know the one who holds the future. And it's his promises that give us peace even when it's uncertain. And what the gospel, uh, sorry, what the book of John is about, uh, book of Revelation is about, it's written by the apostle John, and it was written 94, 95, 96 AD, uh, a little little while after the church had been born, the church was growing, the church was very young though, and there was a big storm of persecution that was bearing down from the Romans. And and so God, through the apostle John, he, he, he gives this message to the people of the church, the people who are followers of Christ Jesus who are about to face a a pretty significant amount of persecution. And I know we typically think of Revelation as a book of, uh, we kind of get caught up in the mysticism a lot of times of Revelation. We we start to try to pick out the signs and try to understand or try to time when Jesus comes and we do some some math gymnastics to try to figure out exactly when all that's going to happen. That's not what we're going to do this morning. But in the book of Revelation, there are some things that are fuzzy. At the same time, there are some things that are crystal clear, like what we see here in Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is an encouragement to the people of God to persevere through an uncertain time. They were getting ready to face persecution. And this word from John, especially in this chapter, was going to give them hope. It was going to give them a a reason to persevere. It was going to comfort them in the midst of all the uncertainty that lies ahead. And it works the same way for us this morning. We have an uncertain future in 2022, but we can cling to some promises that God makes us in his word. And we're going to look at the four characters that are in Revelation 12. We're going to look at the woman, the child, the serpent, and we're going to look at God. And as we look and examine each of these characters in, in this story, and as we, as we start to understand what they do and what some of the imagery around them symbolizes, we'll be able to, uh, to discern some promises that God makes to us that we can hold fast. So if you would, start with me in verse 1. We're going to look at our first character, uh, and it's the woman. And there's a couple of things that are noteworthy about this woman. In verse 1, it tells us that she is spectacularly stunning. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This woman is beautiful. She's described with the sun is wrapped around her, radiating beauty. And she's exalted. The moon is under her feet, and she's wearing a crown. And this crown is special. It has 12 stars, 12 diadems. These, these 12 stars are symbolic of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. This woman is gloriously beauty. And she is stunning. Secondly, she's laboring. Verse 2, she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This woman is in the act of bringing her child into the world. And we're going to talk at, at length about who this child is. But right here in verse 2, she's in the process of bringing him into the world. And then after she brings him into the world, she's forced to flee. That's the third thing we see. After giving birth to her child, she's forced to flee because this serpent, this dragon, the enemy, is seeking to come after her, to destroy her. But even as she flees from the dragon, she's protected. Verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God for which she is to be, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. What's amazing about this is that even though Satan is allowed permission to assault and to attack this woman... That she's never, she's never without the protective care of God. She is watched over by God and provided for by God every step along the way. And so who is this woman? This woman is the people of God, ever under God's care and God's protection. It's the Israel of the Old Testament, the people who were born out of the lineage of Abraham that God called and formed into a people. And it's the people, the, the Gentiles, who've been grafted into the family of God through the ministry of Christ Jesus. 
It's the bride of Christ, the community of believers from Abraham all the way up to this present day and, and, and from this present day until the Lord Jesus returns. And despite how fragile she may seem to be in, in this chapter, in this story, and how sometimes from an earthly perspective, as we look at her, as we look at the people of God, she may seem to be ugly. She may seem to, to have a lot, of, a lot of bad things going on. Despite all the ways that she looks in these things, this is how she is described in her true, stunningly beautiful, cosmically glorious character. This is the people of God. And she gives birth to this child. Who is this child? We, we, we know some things about him based on what we see in verse 5. It says that he's a male child. She'll give birth to a male child and immediately it should take us back to Genesis 3. We know the promise of God that right after Adam and Eve, they, they sinned against God. God pronounces a curse against the serpent who tempted them to sin. And he said, there's going to be an offspring of the woman and he is going to come and crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. You're going to inflict a wound to him, but he will crush your head. This is the Messiah, this child. He's also a ruler. It says that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. If you remember back in 2 Samuel, God promises to King David that there's going to be a king who will reign on his throne forever. This king is one who is appointed to reign, is also described in Psalm 2 as the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The nations will be his inheritance. And we're not told a whole lot about the life of this child, but we know that this child is caught up to heaven. That's the third part of verse 5. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule the nations, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And this is a really important detail, because if you remember what we read in verse 4, that this dragon is, is waiting for this woman to give birth. The dragon is waiting for this Messiah to come into the world that he might devour him. But he's not devoured, he's caught up to the throne of God. And though we don't have much about the, the period between his birth and being caught up to God, we do see in verse 11 about the ministry of this child. It says that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. And this child who was born to reign as king, he would first be slain as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a couple chapters previously in Revelation 5, it tells us that this child's blood that has been shed is the ransom. He has ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. He's, he has brought people to God. And this child is the main character in the storyline of the scriptures. This child, his name is whispered through every page. And in Revelation 12, we only get one verse about him, but we know who this child is. This child is the King of Kings. It's the Lord of Lords. This child is the Lord Jesus. And then we see the antagonist in this story. He's the serpent. He's the enemy of the woman. He's the enemy of the child. He's the enemy of God. He is, he is the enemy. And it's really important when, when we think about the enemy, we talk about our enemy, that we, we make sure that we do so the right way. There's two extremes that we're, we're often tempted to, to gravitate towards. And C.S. Lewis warned us about both of these. Here's what he said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. He says, they themselves are equally pleased with both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we've got to be wise and understanding about when we talk about our enemy. We don't need to over glorify him as if, as if we place him on a pedestal and idolize him. But at the same time, we also shouldn't neglect to recognize that he exists and that he is working against God and he is against the people of God. And Revelation 12 provides a healthy balance for us. We can understand what he's like and what he's doing in the world. So if you want to take a couple notes about this, you can note first that he's great in power. 
In verse 3, it says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Dracon megas. That's the way that the Greek is translated. Literally, dragon, the great. This is a, this is a strong being. But it's important that we don't confuse his greatness and strength with his goodness and character. When we talk about how God is great and God is good, we equate those things together. But this dragon, though he may be strong, he is not good. His character is not good. He is a murderer. This, this dragon is murderous. And we can see that by the color that he is. That red symbolizes the, the nature of bloodshed. And notice what he's doing again in verse 4. He's standing before this woman, waiting to devour her child that was going to be born. This dragon is, is also called, a, a, he, by Jesus in John chapter 10, he, he says that he's come to steal and to kill and to destroy. This dragon is a murderer. And this dragon pretends to be a king. The seven heads and ten horns speak to his strength. But it's really interesting, on those seven heads, he has crowns, he has diadems. He, he, he's wearing a crown as if he were a king. You know, this, this dragon, this serpent is claiming to have a ruling authority. He's claiming to, to have a right to reign, but he has no right to reign. He's only pretending to have a right to reign, but he will do whatever he can to protect what he thinks that he has, which is why he intends to destroy whatever is of God. In verse four, we see that his tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven. He's taken the angels with him and a dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And this is important for us to understand here. The, the all-consuming passion of this dragon is to destroy the child who would be born into the world to undo what the serpent caused in the garden. Just think about that for just a second. The, the all-consuming purpose of this dragon right here, this, the, his passion is to destroy the child, the Christ child, who was born into the world to undo the, the curse of sin that he brought about through his temptation in the garden. His all-consuming passion is to destroy this child. And that speaks again to his character because he's a devil, a Satan, and a deceiver. If you remember back to the garden, what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve, he deceived them, he tempted them. Verse 9 here, he's described as a great dragon that was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And it's important that we recognize these titles and we understand what they mean. These are titles, not names, but these titles tell us about his character. As Satan... Our enemy is an adversary, which means that he is an enemy. He's the, he's the opposition. Uh, and it's important that we understand that Satan and God are not equals. It's, this is not a situation where they are equals but opposite. This is a situation where God is supreme and Satan is his enemy. And in the sense that Satan opposes everything that God loves, that God desires, that God is working towards, that's what we mean when Satan is his adversary. He is by no means equal to God in glory and power, but he does stand in opposition to all that God is wanting to do and trying to do and is doing. He's also called the devil or the accuser. And as the diabolos, he is relentless in his accusations. He, he accuses us of our sin. He accuses us to God of our sin. Have you ever had a time in your life where you really struggled through some sin, uh, th through a sin struggle where you just couldn't seem to get over it? And there was something in the back of your mind that just kept telling you, Hunter, you're not worthy to go to God right now and ask him to forgive you. Hunter, there's no way that God could love you because of what you've done. How do you think that God could still forgive you after all these times and all these things that you know? You really think that God would still forgive you? That's the accuser. That's the Diabolos. He's accusing us of our sin. And he's also called the deceiver of the whole world. 
Our enemy wants to deceive us into believing the lie of sin. And the lie of sin from Genesis all the way up until this day is this. The lie of sin is that there is something that is more satisfying to our souls than what God says. The lie that the serpent is trying to get us to believe is that there is something that is more satisfying to us, something that fills our hearts, something that, that, that gives us life in a way that, that is better than anything that God says. Think all the way back to what, what Satan did with Adam and Eve. He took God's words and he twisted them. And he twisted them ever so slightly and placed a seed of doubt in their minds that they thought that by eating this fruit, I'm going to have something that makes me like God. That there was something that was better than the way that God had made them, something that was better than the way that God had designed them to live. And it's that same lie that he continues to tell over and over and over and over again. That's the lie of sin. That there is something that is better for us, more satisfying to us than God is. But it's not true. It's deceit. And Satan will take God's truth and he'll twist it ever so slightly and he'll distort God's blessings ever so slightly. And when we fall into those temptations and we sin, he will then turn around and accuse us of that very same sin of which he's tempted us with. Our deceiver, our enemy, our adversary is a vile and loathsome enemy. But there's good news. There's good news built here into Revelation 12. Verse 7 through 11, four times it tells us this dragon has been kicked out of heaven. He has been expelled from the throne room of God. And this is really good news for believers, isn't it? Because Satan, our adversary, as our enemy, he's been overcome. Satan, the enemy, as our uh, accuser, as the devil, he has been silenced. And the deceiver, as the one who tempts us to sin, he has been sentenced. His time on earth is short, and that is really good news. But even though he's been defeated, he still continues to fight on. After he's defeated in his attempts to destroy the child, his attention turns towards the woman, towards the people of God. And he makes war on the people of God. If you read verse 12, he says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice! <laughs> the, the enemy has been cast down. But then he says, But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows his time is short. The enemy's attempts to destroy the Christ child, to destroy Jesus at the cross of Christ, they were thwarted. Christ, though he was crucified, he still claimed the decisive victory over the enemy by rising from the grave. And though his attempt was thwarted there, he has made an effort, the enemy has made an effort to destroy all the things of God through destroying the people of God. And he wants to steal and to kill and to destroy and drag as many of us away from the Lord as he can. Verse 17 tells us that his attempt is to, to make war on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. That's, that's, that's the church. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. We are the object of his hatred and his attacks. But this is only going to last a little while longer. As we said, his time is short. His destiny has been sealed. And if you look just ahead, flip a couple chapters over to Revelation 20, you see exactly what his destiny looks like. But we're living in this already not yet of a defeated enemy, but one who is still active and still making war. And this fourth and final character we see in Revelation 12 is, is the Lord God, the Almighty. And there's a couple things to note about where God is in this story. He is ever-present in this entire story, in this entire chapter. And the first way we see that is that God is on the throne. In verse 5, this woman's child was caught up to God to his throne. You know, while the, while the serpent is raging and roaring and attacking this woman, God is on his throne from everlasting to everlasting. He has been, he is, and he will be on his throne. He is not shaken. He is not surprised. He is on his throne. 
And the calm sovereignty of God compared to the franticness of the, the, the serpent of the enemy, that's a wonderfully comforting truth for me to see. And I hope it is for you. That while this enemy rages and roars and is frantic in nature and trying to destroy all the things of God, God is supremely in control, calmly and coolly from everlasting to everlasting. He's also prepared a place of refuge for this woman. And we look in verse 6, this woman has fled into the wilderness. She's being pursued by the enemy. But God has prepared a place for her in which she is to be nourished. And it's while this, while this serpent is pursuing her that God has, he, he has already provided a place of refuge. He has already provided a place of refuge for her, a place of safety, a place of security, a place of rest, a place where she can be nourished. It's important for us to see here in this, in this woman, this, to see ourselves in this woman, that as she is fleeing from the enemy, that God is still protecting and providing her. He, he, he is still bringing about the means of her nourishment. And then the last one is, is that not only was that a past thing, but this is a, a present thing too, that God is still thwarting Satan's schemes. Verses 14 and 16 tell us, you know, as the serpent has turned his focus towards the people of God and making war on this, this woman and her offspring of the church, we see that God is still providing for his people. And first, God raises up this woman on eagle's wings. Verse 13, when the dragon saw it, he'd been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. God provides a means of escape, a means of safety, a means of refuge for his people. And then again, verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. I love that. The earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And there's a number of ways to interpret what exactly is happening in this passage and when this happens and uh, to whom this happens to. But the, the bottom line, the, the one truth that undergirds all of the interpretations of when this part takes place is that this is God's protective providence at work. God using that which belongs to him, the earth, to protect those who belong to him, us, his people. And it's from these four characters, from the woman, from the serpent, from the child, and from God, we, we, we find four promises to cling to. Though we face an uncertain future, we face a, a year ahead and a lifetime ahead of things that we can't control and things that we don't even really know what's going to happen. We can be certain about four things. And the first one is this. The first one is that our enemy is defeated. Our enemy is defeated. This is not only a past tense, but is also a present tense. He has been defeated. Verse 7 through 9 talked about how Michael and his angels waged war against Satan and, and his demons in heaven, and they were defeated. He has been defeated. The adversary has been kicked out. He's been expelled from heaven. As the accuser, he has been silenced. We read in verse 11 here in just a second that, that he has been silenced by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb silences the accuser, and, and he's also been sentenced. He's been given a sentence of when he will be destroyed. His destiny has been sealed. And all the attacks, all the accusations, everything that he throws against us, all of those things ring empty because of the blood of Christ Jesus. This is why I think that Revelation 12, 11 is one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. I want to draw your attention there for just a moment. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. It says that, that they, and speaking of those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus to save, they have conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb. The means of our victory, the means of our salvation was accomplished by Christ Jesus. It's not been accomplished by our good works. 
It's not been accomplished by being born into a Christian family or, having, uh, or going to church regularly or being on a, on a church role. It's not done by being a good person or helping others and caring and loving people well. None of those things silence the accuser. What silences the accuser is the blood of the lamb, the lamb who was slain on our behalf. And because Jesus' blood silences our accuser, that means that there's no lie, there's no scheme, there's no sin that can separate us from what Jesus has purchased for us. And that is a very, very comforting truth for Christians like me, people who feel like you stumble your way towards heaven much more than you run your way to heaven. And even as we stumble, even as we're accused by our enemy, we have confidence that that Jesus' blood has washed away all of our sin. And so I want to encourage us that whatever we face this upcoming year, whatever lie the enemy throws at us, whatever, whatever uh, scheme that he, he seeks to try to distract us with or to draw us away with, whatever bit of opposition that we face in, in faithfully following Christ, whatever it is, may we face it with the confidence of knowing that our enemy is a defeated enemy. He may rage and he may roar, but for the follower of Jesus, the enemy has no power over us. He has no hold over us. He is defeated. And as we wait for the time for his sentence to expire, we can live confidently. We can do so confidently because we know that our king has conquered him and we get to share in that victory with Jesus. The second promise that we get to cling to is is this, that our souls will be preserved. Our souls will be preserved. At the beginning, this woman representing Israel gives birth to the child, to the Messiah, Christ Jesus And what you see later on in the second half of this is that this offspring, that there's an offspring that comes from this woman. And this offspring, they're they're the people of God as well. They're us. They're the church. Those who have been grafted into the family of God through the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And and we're in the second half of Revelation. In our time today, we're in the second half of this chapter, chapter 12. Uh, Jesus has already come. His defeat, or his triumph over Satan, Satan's defeat has already happened. And Satan has turned his attention towards making war on the people who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And, and what's really cool to me to see every time we, I look in this passage is that over and over and over, this enemy seeks to destroy the things of God and the people of God. Uh, several different times he seeks to do that. But every time the enemy attacks, God matches it and tops it by preserving his people. And I was thinking about the, uh, the, the, the original readers of this letter, the original readers of this book, uh, the first century Christians who were facing this immense amount of persecution, not knowing if they were gonna live or die in the next couple of days or couple of weeks, but knowing that there was a world around them that hated them and, didn't, and wanted them to be completely silenced. But I can only imagine the amount of relief and the comfort and the joy that would have come from reading this for the very first time and realizing this is what God is saying. That in the midst of all the enemy's attacks, that God's preservation is secure. His preservation is promised. And that doesn't mean that he's going to preserve our lives all the time. It doesn't mean that our lives are going to be easy all the time. As a follower of Christ, we know that there, is, there, there are no guarantees about anything in this life. We're not guaranteed another day. We're not guaranteed a happy, healthy, and wealthy life. We're not guaranteed a best life now on this earth. And that's okay. This world is not our home. We have an eternal home that awaits us. But as we're here, we can can rest in these glorious truths that God preserves his people. And that same truth that they received, the, the very first readers back in 95, 96 AD, is the same truth that we get to receive this morning that God's protective providence never fails us. 
And as long as the enemy seeks to continue to attack the people of God, so long will God's providence, his protective provision, prevail for his people. There is nothing and there is no one that can separate us from our Father. And I love the way that the Apostle Paul tells about that truth. He asks the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can anything separate us? He says in verse 37, he answers, no. In all things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing truth for us to cling to when we have an uncertain future. That regardless of what comes our way, this year may bring a lot of hardship. This year may bring sickness that leads to death. This year may bring trials and difficult seasons that may make you want to give up. This season, this next season of life may bring a lot of great joys and it may be a wonderful time. But regardless of whatever comes your way, whether it's the best times or whether it's the worst times, your soul can rest easy in that truth. That God's protective providence never fails. That God will preserve our souls. And we have no reason to fear because our God does not lose those who are his. The third uh, promise that we can cling to is, is our God has provided our enemy is defeated, our souls will be preserved, and our God has provided. It's been amazing to me to watch and see how our community has rallied after the tornado that's come through. And I got to see God provide in a couple of, in a number of ways, but I want to share with you two specific ways that I, got, I saw God provide. I got to help with the, the volunteer uh, the headquarters where we were sending out a lot of the volunteer teams to go and help pick up debris and uh, chainsaw things and put tarps down, all that kind of stuff. It, it was a lot of fun. But it was amazing to see how when there was a specific need that couldn't be met, God would provide someone almost immediately that had the tools required to meet that need. And I was thinking about a time there, there was a, a family that called in and said that they had some pretty significant roof damage. And this was pretty early on. They had some pretty significant roof damage and they, they needed someone who knew what they were doing. It, it was beyond a volunteer's capacity to help. They needed someone to come and help patch up the roof to tarp it up, maybe add a few pieces of wood to kind of stabilize the area. And we're all looking around like none of us know how to do any of that. Uh, we didn't have the right tools. We didn't have the right experience. We didn't have the right volunteers. And so we, we kind of took that, that request and began to kind of push it over to the side. And right as they were doing that, a lady comes walking in. And on her shirt, it says, roof girl. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was like there was a need that came. We didn't have it, God provided it. And I could tell you five different stories of how that exact same played out. And those were just the ones that I got to see. It's been amazing to see how when there was that specific need that God provided the specific person at just the right time to meet that person's need. The other way that I saw God provide, and this actually goes back before the tornado even came, is that God has provided our city and our community with wonderfully gifted, uh, wonderfully gifted, strong, faithful Christians in leadership. He has placed good men and women of character, of great, strong faith. He's placed them in our city government. He's placed them in our school systems. He's given them to our church, and he's given them to our first responders. I got to watch some of our first responders and got to interact with them some and just talk to them and hear their hearts, and it was amazing to me to watch their response. That, that tornado came through at you know, 1.30, 2 o'clock, and by 2.15, 2.30, those folks were in the mess, 
They were, they were the first ones on the scene and at, at their own safety and at risk of even their own lives, they, they were stepping into the mess, into the brokenness to help people who were hurting and who were helpless. And as I step back for a couple of weeks now uh, and just kind of try to take in the scope of all the things that have happened, uh, it struck me the other day that this is exactly what God has done for us. You know, the Bible's full of wonderful truths. It's full of some really good truths about Jesus and what he's done. It's also filled with some tough truths, some hard love uh, that we have to swallow. And one of those truths is that you and I, we're born sinners. We're born as sinners and we continue to be sinners. We reject God's design for our life. We, we have all shaken our fist at God and said, I don't like the way that you have designed me or created me. I'm gonna try to live as the king of my own life. Every single one of us has believed the lie of sin that there is something better that's more satisfying to us than God is. And we've tried to live our lives in that way. And truthfully, you and I, we're, we're helpless, we're hurting, and we're hopeless. We're hurting because we're in a broken world and we feel the hurt. We're hopeless because we have no hope of eternal life with God. We have no hope of escape from this. And we're helpless because there is no way on our own, with our good deeds, or even our ability to do anything, there, we, we are helpless to make peace with God. So we are helpless, we are hurting, and we are hopeless. But just at the right time, God sent just the right person to step into our brokenness, to, to rescue sinners just like us who are hurting, helpless, and broken. And his name is Jesus. And we just celebrated his coming yesterday. We celebrated the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. He came, but he didn't just come to come. He came to be here to live and to die as a substitute for sinners. He came to be the sacrifice that, that Hebrews 9.22 says that there must be a sacrifice to, to forgive sins. The shedding of blood is the only way for sin to be forgiven. Christ Jesus came to shed his blood that our sins might be forgiven. And those of us who are hurting can be made whole in Christ. Those of us who are hopeless now have, because of Christ, we have an eternal hope. And those of us who are helpless, we're still helpless. But Christ Jesus has come to be our help. He's come to give his life that we might have peace with God. He is a refuge for us. And as I watched these first responders provide a place of refuge for people, I couldn't help but to think about how God has provided a, a place of refuge for us, a place of eternal refuge in Christ Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ to save you, if you connect with any of those helpless, hurting, or hopeless, and I want to I plead with you to, to receive Christ today to give your life to Christ, to ask him to forgive you of your sins, to trust in his finished work on the cross. And in verse 11 will be true of you as well. You have conquered the enemy by the blood of the lamb. It's his blood shed for us that gives us hope. It gives us life. It gives us joy. Christ has provided a refuge for you. Won't you come and receive that this morning? For those of you who are in Christ, God is still a refuge. He has provided and he continues to provide. And I want to leave you with a, a passage from, uh, from Psalm chapter 46 that, that, that talks about and speaks to who God is for us. You know, in 22, we may have a lot of things that come at us, but this is a, a place of, of hope for us. This is a promise that we can hold fast to, that God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in time of trouble. And I love what verse two and three say. God is her refuge and, and he, he's, a, he's our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We won't fear when the earth gives way. We won't fear when the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. We won't fear when the waters roam and roar and foam. We won't fear when the mountains tremble. We won't fear anything in all of creation. We won't fear at all. Why? Because God is our refuge. 
And he is our very present help in times of trouble. And so if you are in Christ, you have no reason to fear. You have no reason to fear because our God has provided. And you can trust that as he has in the past, so he will in the future. He will continue to be a place of refuge for you that when the storms of life come and things seem uncertain and it feels like everything is caving in, that God will provide that place of refuge for you. He will be your refuge and he will continue to provide for you all the days of your life until the day that he calls you home. And all these promises that we can cling to, all these promises hinge on this last one, this fourth one, that our Savior has triumphed. Our Savior has triumphed. You know, as Michael was triumphing over Satan in the heavenly realms, verse 7 through 9, Jesus was triumphing over Satan as he rose from the grave. And it was at the same time that Christ defeated Satan. Finally, he defeated him and he stripped him of all power. He disarmed them, as Paul writes in Colossians. He disarmed them and Christ Jesus is now seated in heaven. And he's reigning on the throne and one day soon he's going to return for his people. You know, we, we celebrated the advent, the first coming of Christ, and we long for the second advent. We long for the second coming of Christ. And we live in this already not yet world of where Christ triumphed already over the enemy, over sin, over the grave, over death. But at the same time, those things are still present in this life. And we know that when Christ returns, those things will be no more. But we still have this, we have such a tension. There's such a hope, but at the same time, there's still so much hurt. And so how do we live in this world? Well, that's what we're going to study all next year. We're going to study what does it look like for us to live as, as kingdom citizens in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king, and he has a kingdom. It has come, it has come, and it is still coming. But we don't have to wait until his kingdom finally and fully comes for us to live in the victory of Jesus, for us to revel, to glory in the triumph of Christ. We can do that by the way that we live. And again, I want to draw your attention back to verse 11. And verse 11 tells us how we can do that. It says this, and they have conquered him. Remember, this is the the brothers, people who have trusted in Christ for salvation, that they have conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. The way that you and I revel in the victory and the triumph of Jesus is by loving not our lives even unto death. By treasuring nothing, even including our lives, treasuring nothing above the way that we treasure Christ. That's how you and I revel. That's how we glory in the triumph of Jesus. We don't love our lives. We love our King who gave his life for us. And that means that that's the way that we, it changes the way that we do everything. If you get some time this week, I want to encourage you to, to look up the, the, the story of Dr. Bill Wallace of China. Dr. Bill Wallace of China was a missionary uh, to China in the 30s, 40s, and early part of the 50s. Now, right at the height of World War II and the, the Communist Revolution in China, uh, Dr. Wallace was a missionary there. He was a surgeon. It's a pretty amazing story. There's a, a pastor, Danny Aiken, uh, who preached a sermon about his life. I would encourage you to read it if you can. It will give some more details. But I'll share with you just a brief part about it. Uh, Dr. Wallace, when he was young, he, he felt a, a calling from the Lord to serve as a missionary. Dr. Wallace knew the promise of, of Luke 10:2 that the harvest is plentiful, but that the laborers are few. And he knew that there were people all over the world that were, that were ready to receive Christ as their Savior and as the Lord, but they just needed someone to tell them. And he knew that he was the answer to the prayer for someone to come and to tell people the good news of Jesus. And he was drawn to China. The Lord was drawing him there. And he went to school and got an education as a doctor, but he turned down a, a practice here in the United States to go and to serve the people in China as a, as a missionary, but also as a minister. 
And, and he, he not only performed surgeries that healed their physical bodies, but he spoke truth that could, that could address the needs of their souls. And he did this at the height, like I said, of the height of the, the Second World War. All the Japanese invasions and bombings, they took place a lot in his city. And then during the Communist Revolution, Dr. Wallace continued to do surgeries even while bombs were being dropped on the hospital. There's a story that he tells of, of a bomb that was dropped. It landed 50 feet from the inside the operating room that he was in. Bomb dropped through the ceiling, maybe through a couple of floors, and landed in his, uh, in his operating room. And when people heard about it, they said, oh, you got to get out of here. Dr. Wallace, you got you to leave. He continued not only to provide uh, that patient care right then and there, but even as people were telling him, you need to leave the country, you need to come back to America, you need to come back to a place of safety, he said, no thanks. That this is where God had called him, because he loved not his life even unto death. And as the war ended and the, the tides changed in China and the Communist Party began to take power, they framed Dr. Bill Wallace as a spy one day. And they, they dragged him off into prison. And there in prison, they beat him, they tortured him, they interrogated him, they accused him of being a spy. But not only would he uh, confess to something he didn't do, but he would never renounce his faith in Christ. And even in the prisons, he began to, he still ministered to the others who were in those prison cells. And one night, uh, a couple of guards were, were coming through and they decided they were going to rough up uh, Bill Wallace of China. And they decided to, to poke some bars through the bars of his prison cell. And they poked him and they beat him and they pushed on him and they, they hit him until he died, until he breathed his last breath. And Dr. Bill Wallace died there in that prison cell alone, isolated, but he died and he went to glory with his heavenly king. And the story, the, the legacy, the, the life of Bill Wallace is remarkable, but the legacy that he left and the story of what happened after his death is even more amazing to me. Uh, so the story goes as there were thousands of people who mourned his loss, days of mourning by the Chinese people who, who were impacted by the life of Dr. Wallace not only impacted by his care and his love, but impacted by the hope of the gospel that he shared with them. And his legacy is, is summed up in this right here. Dr. Wallace was buried in an unmarked tomb by the Communist Party. They didn't want to make a big deal about his death because he was such a beloved figure in the, in the community. So they buried him in an unmarked tomb outside the city. And at the risk of their own safety, the risk of their own lives, some of the people that, some of the Chinese believers that he led to faith went out to his tomb to mark his unmarked tomb with these words, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 121. Philippians 121 was Dr. Wallace's, it, that was his life motto. That was the verse that he, he said, this is my life's calling. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's the way that Bill Wallace of China lived. And that's the way that Bill Wallace of China died. To live for Christ and he died. And as he died, he gained everything. He lost his life on this earth, but he gained an eternity with Jesus. And that's the way that we revel in the triumph of Jesus. We love not our lives even unto death. And it shapes the way that we do everything. You know, it's very likely, not for certain, nothing's for certain. It's very unlikely that you and I will face a situation like Bill Wallace or any of the other martyrs who've died for the faith. It's unlikely that we'll face that situation this upcoming year or even in our lives as a whole. But I pray that we'll live with the same sort of conviction that he had that we love not our lives unto death, but that we will live for Christ and we will die and we will gain. And that that'll shape the way that we steward our resources. It'll shape the way that we invest our time. It'll shape the things that, we, that we've poured into our lives, the way that we expend the time of our life. That'll shape everything about us. Maybe a, another way to say it would be to say it this way. 
In 2022, let's not live as if the outcome were still undecided. Let's not live as if the the outcome of eternity is still undecided, as if it's up in the air about who's going to win, either Satan's going to win or Jesus is going to win, because it's not undecided. Jesus has triumphed. God has provided. Our souls will be preserved because our enemy is defeated. So let's be bold for Jesus this year. Let's be bold for Christ. Let's be bold, faithful ambassadors, because we know that our king has triumphed. And we get to live, we get to revel, we get to glory in the triumph that Jesus has already won. And we get to go and live our lives with no fear, but with boldness, because Christ is victorious and he has won. So may we be ever faithful to be found being about our father's business, bringing the hope and the joy of Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. Now, right now is a wonderful opportunity for us to share the hope of Christ with our community. There are a lot of people who are still hurting, a lot of people who are still trying to process through all the things that they saw. There's nothing quite like a a near-death experience to make you think about some eternal things, eternal matters. So maybe there are people that you know in your life right now that have gone through uh, the last couple weeks or, or through just this last season of life. They've gone through something that's been pretty traumatic that's caused them to begin to think about eternal matters. Would you be bold to have a conversation with them in the next couple of days or couple of weeks? Would you be bold to share with them about the hope that you have in Jesus, that no matter what happens in your life, whether the earth crumbles, the mountains move into the heart of the sea, the devil rages and he roars, we have no need to fear because Jesus has won. I wanna end this morning uh, with a a verse from a hymn that that I really like. Some of you may know it. It's called, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow by R.J. Stevens. It says this, I don't know about tomorrow, it may bring me poverty, but the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that may be my portion may be through the flame of flood, but his presence goes before me and I'm covered in his blood. You know, what 2022 holds is, is uncertain to us, but we can be certain about these things. Our enemy is defeated. Our souls will be preserved. Our God has provided through the triumph of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of the gospel. And we thank you so much for the truths that we see in this chapter that teach us about who you are, about who we are, and about what you have done for us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, if there are some in here this morning who do not have this hope, but may still feel like they are hopeless, who may be hurting, who may feel like they're helpless, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would draw near to Jesus and have their hearts be transformed by grace through faith in Christ alone. Well, we thank you that your blood silences the accuser. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, there's a temptation often to be very worrisome, to be afraid of what may come. Lord, help us to rest in these promises that you are our our refuge, our ever-present help in time of trouble. Help us to rest in the promises that because Christ has triumphed and our enemy is defeated, we have no reason to fear. We can rest in the promise that that you never lose those who are yours. No one can snatch us out of your hand. And so whatever may come this year, Lord, may we be faithful to love you. May we be faithful to serve you. May we be found not loving our lives even unto death, but may we be found using the time of our life to make much of the King who's given his life. We thank you for all that you are. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We love you so much, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.